Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. Hi, I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. Today begins our last chapter content episode for season one. What a journey. It's hard to believe that Sarah and I have covered Campbell again, a year after we took the PCS. Today, we're going to start by talking about assistive technology. Can you believe that? We did Campbell again. We didn't even have to do it. We didn't even have to, and we did it anyways. We did it anyways. All the things that we have learned. Actually, I feel like I have picked up a few more things. So it is, I mean, I feel like it was worth it. Okay, back to assistive technology. There are five elements to assistive technology, adaptive seating and positioning, wheeled mobility, augmentative and alternative communication, or AAC, computers, and electronic aids to daily living. Seating systems can be classified into three categories. You have linear or planar, generically contoured or modular, and custom molded or custom contoured. Good positioning usually consists of an upright midline orientation with a near vertical alignment of the trunk and head. In children, the 90-90-90 rule is often used to maintain the hips, knees, and ankles at 90 degrees. Research on therapeutic seating for children with neuromuscular disorders has focused on the effects of hip flexion angle and orientation of the trunk and head. Most kids with myelodysplasia or SCI can tolerate a near vertical back, but skin breakdown is of course a concern. There are many effects of adaptive seating on body functions and structures. Within the neuromuscular system, A long-standing assumption is that increased muscle tone can be reduced by altering the seat angle. Seats can be horizontal, wedged, meaning the front edge is raised, or anterior tipped, meaning the front edge is lowered. Backs can be vertical, reclined, or forward inclined. All of these essentially changing the hip angle. Within the musculoskeletal system, It is thought that maintenance of balanced forces to the trunk and lower extremities should prevent structural changes such as scoliosis and hip dislocation, especially in children with asymmetric postures. But true balance of forces may not be possible when we have severe tone and asymmetry. Within the cardiopulmonary system, pulmonary function in children with spastic CP was improved when sitting in a modular seat with adjustable support. 
Within the integumentary system, the risk of a pressure sore is directly related to the length of time the soft tissue is compressed and inversely related to the area being compressed. Pressure mapping devices can help determine pressure distribution and prevent skin breakdown problems. There are also effects of adaptive seating on activity and participation. Let's talk about those briefly. So research suggests that seating systems that provide external support improve pulmonary function in children with CP, reduce scoliosis when combined with a soft orthosis in children with muscular dystrophy, improve arm function in children with cerebral palsy, and improve oral motor skills and vocalizations in children with disabilities. There is evidence to support that contoured cushions improve pressure distribution as well as spinal support and posture. Current clinical thinking suggests that a neutral pelvis is best. Now let's talk about principal concepts in the prescription of seating systems. Assessment of posture in seating system begins with the pelvis. Please, if you remember one thing from this section, remember this, it all begins with the pelvis. The effective hip flexion and knee extension range of motion on the vertical orientation of the pelvis is among the most critical factors in selecting seating angles and components. If these muscles are considerably short, the pelvis may be immobile and more consideration will be needed for the seating solution. With a flexible deformity, meaning one that can be manually corrected and maintained, vertical and symmetrical head and trunk alignment can usually be achieved with appropriate support. If we have a fixed deformity, and severe joint contractures, the seating system must accommodate and support, not fix the deformities. Of note, for children with severe scoliosis and pelvic obliquity, neutral alignment of the pelvis is not possible. So it may be better to start with a relatively vertical head and level shoulders and allow the pelvis to be tilted and rotated. It is important to match the seating system with the child's needs. Like I said before, seating systems and positional components are typically classified into those three levels. You have the planar or linear system, which includes a flat seat and back and is appropriate for children with good postural control, sitting balance, or minimal deformity. Then you have the middle option, the generically contoured or modular system. This provides external postural control by increasing the points of contact, especially laterally. The seat and back surfaces are rounded by shaping layers to correspond to the curves of the body. Contours can help distribute pressures more evenly over the entire seat or back surface. Nearly all generically contoured components are available commercially. This is useful when a child cannot maintain proper positioning with supports or has a history of skin breakdown. Our last and most aggressive option is a custom contoured, custom molded system. These provide an intimate fit and conform to the shape of the child's body. The system provides the greatest amount of pressure relief because it offers the greatest amount of contact surface area. The general rule of thumb when selecting a system is actually that less is better. Even the book acknowledges that this is an ever-changing field. So take everything with a grain of salt here. I'm just going to try to review the basic concepts for selection of a seating system. First, let's talk about seat cushions. This is the most critical element of the seating system and can be classified into one of the three categories I just discussed. One main topic is the anti-thrust seats, 
which is a block of high density foam placed just anterior to the ischial tuberosities that prevents the pelvis from sliding forward and equalizes pressure distribution along the thigh. They work best with deep lateral contours of the pelvis and lateral thigh supports. With back supports, a gentle curved surface can improve lateral trunk stability, posture, and comfort, but a custom molded back should be considered for children with severe fixed spinal deformities. With pelvic stabilization, a pelvic support placed at 45 degrees angle to the seat back junction is the most typical form of pelvic stabilization. Factors to consider in determining seat angle include severity and type of impairment in muscle tone, joint contracture, skeletal deformities, and postural control in sitting. A slight anterior wedging of the seat may improve head alignment or keep children from sliding, and opening the hip angle by tipping the front seat edge may be necessary when hip extension contractures are present. The variable seat-to-back angles allow adjustments of tilt and recline. Tilt is useful for relieving pressure or trunk or neck fatigue. Remember, in a tilt system, the seat-to-back angle does not change. Recline is useful for fatigue, pain, or catheterization. In terms of upholstery, vinyl is a durable cushion cover but can be hot, slippery, stiff, and can't be removed for washing. Synthetic knits can be waterproof, less slippery, and easy to clean. For leg support, elevating leg rest should only be ordered when required. When we are dealing with deformity or limited joint movements, forcing the foot into neutral alignment on the footrest may impose undesirable stress at the hips. Children who are able to make postural adjustments and able to place their feet should not have restraints. Contoured seats typically provide the most effective lateral thigh and pelvic support, as well as good pressure relief. You can add thigh supports, but you don't want to stretch tight hip adductors. Remember, we don't use the chair accessories to stretch. Anterior supports come in the form of an H harness or a horizontal anterior chest strap. Some things to think about with the headrest. You may need to adapt a forward head hanging position for a patient to deal with increased oral secretions or reflux. Do not base head position off of what looks good. Also, support under the occiput provides better head support than a flat contact on the back of the head. So that was just a quick overview on seating system. The book does go into more detail on all of these, of course, and there's a wealth of information online. Moving on to wheeled mobility, the purpose of the mobility base depends on the level of function. Will this be independent mobility or caregiver propelled? Strollers are appropriate for children zero to five years old. These are not designed for independent propulsion, but are considered a mobility device. And this is something you need to consider if you have any thought that you may need a manual wheelchair within that five-year time frame. Manual wheelchairs can be configured for dependent mobility or independent mobility, depending on the needs of the family and child. There are many considerations for independent mobility. There are some models specific for the younger child with a low seat to floor height. There are one-arm drive chairs for individuals with unilateral functional limitations. There are also manual tilt in space and recline features for manual wheelchairs. Remember, tilt and space frames maintain all seated angles throughout the rotational phase, meaning that angles at hips, knees, and elbows remain constant while the weight is shifted off the butt and thighs. Recliner frames incorporate the ability to change the seated angle 
by moving the seat backwards in relation to the seat. This changes the hip and elbow angle while the weight is redistributed over the buttocks, thighs, back, and the back of the head. To unweight the buttocks and thighs sufficiently, the frame must be tilted a minimum of 45 degrees in the tilt and space and reclined 30 degrees in a recliner. Tilt and space can be essential to assist with transfers as well as aid in repositioning. Recline can assist with dressing and bowel and bladder functions. Beware that a reclining frame can trigger extensor tone in a child. Moving on to power mobility, children as young as 18 to 24 months can benefit from power mobility, and studies show they are capable of learning the process. Scooters require good sitting balance and arm active range of motion and have limited adjustability. Power wheelchairs have power recline and power tilt capabilities that offer great alternatives for children who require position changes throughout the day. Again, like I said before, recline can sometimes activate that extensor tone. So this is a good place to use the tilt and space model instead. Two types of controls are proportional and digital. An example of proportional is a joystick, like you'd commonly find on a power chair. An example of a digital multiple switch control system consists of four separate switches, each controlling a direction. What about other assistive technology? This can include switches, controls, access sites, AAC, computer technology, and electronic aids to daily living. Children with motor impairments may require special switches or controls to operate assistive technology. Switches may also be called control interfaces or input devices. An access site is a body part that will be used to activate the switch. There are tons of switch options out there. Children as young as six months can use switch toys. There is also something called an integrated control system where several assistive technology devices are operated with a single input device, like the joystick on a wheelchair. If you're gonna use an integrated control system, you need to make sure you have a backup plan for all the individual technologies. AAC is used when the ability to verbally communicate and interact is limited or absent. Obviously, this is really a huge speech therapy area, but the PT will play a role in determining positions that optimize the use of equipment for communication. Computers can be adapted to customize the accessing method for the user's needs. Things like adding software to decrease the need for keystrokes and allowing more word prediction. There are external options as well, like using a keyboard to prevent unwanted strokes or using an ergonomic keyboard for support. There are also mobile arm supports and overhead slings to help with weakness. Also, touch screens are much more accessible now and can help reduce the cognitive demand. There are also mouse alternatives. Going off of what Sheila just said, as far as AAC and our role as PTs, I firsthandly uh, experience this almost every day that the speech therapists will contact me as the PT in school to help them with mounting AAC devices on kids' wheelchairs and making sure that their positioning is appropriate to access, whether it be something like they're using a Nova Chat where they touch the screen or something like an eye gaze device. It's really important and position is super important when it comes to AAC. Last, let's touch briefly on electronic aids to daily living. 
This is a device or a system of devices that allows the operation of electrical appliances or equipment in a variety of ways and places. The purpose of an EADL is to apply technology to facilitate the user's control over the environment, promote independent access to items, and improve quality of life. Real-life examples include garage door openers and remote controls, and these can be adapted for children with disabilities. EADLs generally include the main control unit, the central processing unit, the switch, and any devices to be controlled or activated. Two basic types are direct and remote. Direct means that the devices to be controlled are plugged directly into the main control unit. And in remote, the control unit acts as a transmitter, sending signals to remote receivers. The book obviously details all of these areas more, but I would focus on seating and positioning and wheeled mobility, making sure you understand all of the components and why you would choose certain components. Moving on to chapter 34, gate. This chapter isn't actually physically in your textbook, but it is an online chapter that comes with the book when you buy it new. If you haven't explored what the book has to offer online, this is your chance to dive in. We've talked about it before, but there are some awesome resources on there. Typical walking has five major attributes, stability and stance, sufficient foot clearance and swing, appropriate pre-positioning of the foot for initial contact, adequate step length, and energy conservation. Inability to achieve the prerequisites or loss of prerequisite attributes is characteristic of atypical. Prerequisites include adequate motor control and CNS maturation, adequate range of motion, strength, appropriate bone structure and composition, and intact sensation. The neutral mechanism for locomotion is theorized to include a central pattern generator, or CPG, located in either the spinal cord or the brainstem. The CPG for walking is believed to organize the activation and firing sequence of muscles during gait. There are some factors to suggest that neural foundations for locomotion in humans are established during embryogenesis. One factor could be the early onset of infant stepping in premature infants. Research has demonstrated that the number of muscle synergies used during stepping increase during the first year and are correlated to changes in the biomechanics of the walking pattern. Muscle synergy is defined as the coordinated patterns of muscle activity that flexibly combine to produce functional motor behaviors. Adequate range of motion, strength, adequate bone structure and composition, and body composition are mechanical factors that affect the development and refinement of walking. There is research that suggests that infants often have to physically grow into the body dimensions needed for optimal functioning and the velocity of nerve conduction must increase for activation of CPGs. Five important determinants of mature walking include duration of single limb stance, walking velocity or speed, cadence, step length, and the ratio of pelvic span to ankle speed. The duration of limb stance is the length of time where only one foot is on the ground during stance phase. As the child's stability improves, 
the duration of single limb stance increases. The most rapid changes occur between 1.5 and 3.5 years of age. Walking speed, cadence, and step length are influenced by growth. Walking speed increases up to age seven. Step length and leg length have a linear relationship. Cadence decreases with age throughout childhood with the most rapid reduction occurring between one and two years of age. Step length increases and cadence decreases up to 3.5 years old and then remain essentially constant into adulthood. The book then goes through age-related changes in gait. From birth to nine months, the fastest rate of growth occurs in the extremities. Flexion contractures are initially present at the hip external rotation is slightly greater than range of internal rotation. The knees in the frontal plane typically exhibit genuvarum. The postural control, anti-gravity muscle strength, and control of gravitational moments that develop during the first nine months of life are important precursors to independent ambulation. Anti-gravity strength of the hip flexors begins to develop early on through kicking movements from the supine position. Hip extensor strength, both concentric and eccentric, begin to develop during activities in the prone position and increases as the child begins creeping and kneeling activities. By eight months of age, when infants are displaced in a seating position, the visual, proprioceptive, and vestibular systems work together to consistently bring the center of mass back to a stable position. From nine to 15 months at the onset of walking, lower extremity alignment is characterized by a wide base of support and hip abduction, flexion, and slight external rotation. The center of mass is closer to the head and upper trunk than in an older child. The rate limiting factors associated with walking are sufficient extensor muscle strength, dynamic balance, and postural control. Anticipatory postural adjustments are present at the onset of walking in the postural phase, but not during the locomotor phase. The pattern of a beginning walker may be compared to someone walking on a slippery surface. Infant ambulation is characterized as consisting of a wide base of support, increased hip and knee flexion, full foot initial contact and plantar flexion, a short stride, increased cadence, and a relative foot drop in swing phase. One interesting aspect is that the frequency of kicking may drive muscle activity for earlier walking. It has been found that reduced kicking in Down syndrome is correlated with later walking age than their typically developing peers. Co-contraction of agonist muscle groups is also important for reciprocal walking. The development of sufficient extensor strength is also believed to be a critical variable. From three to five years of age, joint angles are more associated with those than of adult while walking. Balance mechanisms continue to be refined during this period. Children under four years of age do not demonstrate integrated postural development. At age seven, patterns by standards of movement or motion are fully mature. At this time, postural control is close to maturity with the visual, vestibular, and proprioceptive systems 
becoming more efficiently coordinated. Research suggests that these systems are at full maturity from 10 to 12 years of age. Next, the book goes over components of gait and gait analysis. I'm going to go over some of the general information. For the remaining information, I invite you to take a look at the expert consult page as they have some wonderful videos that help one to understand the gait cycle and what muscles are activated when. I have a hard time with the gait cycle myself and do not want to explain anything incorrectly to you. Therefore, I refer you to the expert. The stance phase of the gait cycle occupies approximately 60% of the cycle and the swing phase is about 40%. The stance phase is divided into five sub-phases, initial contact, loading response, mid-stance, terminal stance, and pre-swing. Swing phase begins at toe-off and occurs during the period of single support of the stance limb. There are three phases, initial swing, mid-swing, and terminal swing. Let's go over some gait definitions. Cadence is the frequency of steps taken in a given amount of time, usually measured in steps per minute. Concentric muscle contraction is a shortening contraction that produces acceleration. Eccentric muscle contraction is a lengthening contraction that produces deceleration. External load is ground reaction forces, inertial forces, and gravitational forces that affect joint motion. Isometric muscle contraction is a stabilizing contraction that produces no net power. Joint movement is a force acting at a distance from an axis causing a rotation about that axis. Joint power is the net rate of energy absorption or generation. Kinematics are the parameters used to describe motion without regard to forces. Kinetics are the parameters that describe the causes of the movement. Step length is the longitudinal distance between the two feet. Stride length is the longitudinal distance between the initial contact of one foot and the next initial contact of the same foot. Walking velocity is the rate of walking or the distance traversed in a specific length of time or in a specified length of time. The book then goes on to talk about kinematics and EMGs which I will not go over on this podcast. Again, I refer you to the videos on Expert Consult as they do a wonderful job of explaining everything and you get a visual while they are verbally explaining things to you. Yeah, I feel like explaining it without watching it would be really challenging and it would just sound like word vomit. Agreed, for sure. So when is a referral necessary for a gait analysis? It is ideal for the analysis to occur when the child's gait pattern is mature, but this is not always possible. Generally, a referral is necessary when there is a change in a child's gait pattern and or functional ability when walking. An analysis may be necessary when determining the need for things such as a walking aid or an orthosis. A gait analysis can assist in differentiation of primary impairments from secondary compensations. Primary impairments are abnormalities that are, are a direct result of neuromuscular impairments, such as spasticity, and secondary impairments are musculoskeletal impairments, such as soft tissue tightness that develops over time. Gait deviations may also occur 
as a result of impairments in motor control, spasticity, limited range of motion, decreased strength, poor sensation, and bony deformities. The book goes over common gait deviations of children with CP. Again, as I've said a few times already, I refer you to the expert consult as they have a great video with examples of common gait deformities that you may see. First is bony deformities. The primary focus of treatment for bony deformity is orthopedic treatment because this will not resolve with conservative management. Second is internal femoral torsion or femoral antitorsion. Visually, this looks like internal rotation of the femur during walking. Antitorsion or internal femoral torsion is a true structural twist deformity of the long axis of the femur. External tibial torsion is an external rotation or torsion of the long axis of the tibia. Internal tibial torsion is an internal rotation or torsion of the long axis of the tibia. External tibial torsion is often developed as a secondary impairment to internal femoral torsion. Pes valgus is common to children in children with spastic diplegic or spastic quadriplegic types of CP and less often occurs in children with spastic hemiplegias. Visually, the calcaneus is everted. Children with CP may also have inadequate range of motion and spasticity, which impacts gait. They may also have abnormal plantar flexion knee extension couple. During normal walking, the plantar flexion knee extension couple is a force couple where the soleus controls forward momentum and progression of the ground reaction force by eccentric contraction. Children with CP often have a foot flat initial contact, which places the gastroc under tension at both ends of the muscle. Children with CP may also have a crouched posture, which is caused by hip flexion contractures or tightness, knee flexion contractures or tightness, excessive plantar flexor muscle weakness, or impairments in motor control. Increased flexion is seen at all joints in the sagittal plane. They may also have limited motion at the knee during swing phase and weakness in the hip abductors and gastroc soleus. Hip abductor weakness creates an uncontrolled pelvic drop on the swing side and lateral trunk shift over the stance limb. Gastroc soleus weakness causes insufficient acceleration force in terminal stance and a slower gait velocity. Again, please take a look at the expert consult for videos of gait. They have examples of typical gait in all phases of the gait cycle, swing phase, a patient with internal twist in the femur that demonstrates a walk with excessive internal rotation through the hip joint, and also a patient demonstrating a crouched gait. It's also helpful to see these things visually to understand it properly. Thank you all so much for listening to us over this season. We are so glad we could be with you on your journey to your PCS. We have our final fact sheet Friday episode coming out this week and an amazing question and answer episode with Helen and Jessica from PCS Advantage next week. Please be on the lookout in a few weeks for a survey coming out on our Instagram and Facebook pages to provide us feedback and tips for next year.
Yes, please. We really want feedback. I don't want you guys to worry about it till after you take the test. But sometimes after we take a test, we want to like purge all thoughts about the test. And we're just asking you very nicely to come back and help us out one more time because we really want to make this better and just keep helping people. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next week. And remember, you totally got this.